Well, it's good to see everybody again. I, um, Brother Zach's work yesterday notwithstanding, I very much appreciate the name tags. So many new faces, it's nice to be able to call each other by name. Um, I hope that your day is going well and that you've been blessed already today. Today, today, I want to talk about, uh, let's call it, hindrances to discipleship. Yesterday we worked to define what discipleship is, and today I want to talk about what keeps people from pursuing that path. And we talked a little bit about that yesterday. I'm going to, we're going to be a little bit more in text today. Um, so let's jump right in, and let's jump in uh, in Acts chapter 8. where we pull our title for today from. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not right. We got a bad reference. Oh no, I'm in the wrong. I'm in the wrong book. It's a right reference, wrong book. Let's try again. Acts eight and twenty-six. Yes, there we are. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. I always notice that in just a sidebar here, how specific the Spirit speaks to people in Acts. Here, like street address, like it's like holy GPS. Like uh, Ananias is told when he's told to go talk to Saul, go in the way that is called straight, and there you'll find a man named Saul. This is pretty impressive stuff. <clears throat> Anyhow, so he gives him directions, and he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understand thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me, and desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. Put your thumb there, flip back to Isaiah 53, and we'll read it in its... We'll read what he was reading. Isaiah 53, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected of men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Flip back over to Acts chapter 8. In verse 34, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. So a lot there. Some interesting things I... I'm almost as interested in the pieces that are missing from the scriptural text as the pieces that we have. For instance, with Nathaniel. Remember when Jesus meets Nathaniel and he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And he, he, he uses the, the, the passage of Jacob's ladder and he says, he, he talks to Nathan and he, he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And whatever that's about... Like there's way more to that story that I don't have. I, I don't know what I don't know what was happening with Nathan under the fig tree. I don't know why that was the thing that made it all click for him. But there's a piece of that story that's missing, and you kind of just left to guess what what about that story was so compelling? What about I mean, I, I just don't know. I don't I don't know I don't know what's there. But something's there, something's missing in the narrative. And those little hooks, they just kind of, I get stuck there, and I want to know why, why that? Why that passage? What was, what was speaking to him? And there's something about that in this story, too. Like, why this passage? Why, why is the Ethiopian eunuch stuck on this passage? And it occurs to me as we read it today 
there's several things in that passage that speak, that probably speak to a eunuch, right? Um, who's believed his report? He has no generation. Um, where does it say there? He's rejected of men. I, I just, there's lots of pieces here. Um, he was taken from prison for a Who shall declare his generation? Like what happens with his people? Where do they come from? Where do they go? These things that, I, I just wonder if these aren't the things that are speaking to the eunuch about this, whatever this passage, this significant prophecy. And he's like, I can identify with those things. Who is this person? Who, who answers this? Like, what's, what's Isaiah talking about in these passages? And trying to put himself into, into some kind of framework where he can, he can make a connection with the text. And that seems to be happening in a lot of these cases where people are trying to put themselves, to insert themselves into the text of the Bible, to identify with it and understand it from an internal perspective. What does this mean for me? And, you know, that's a... That's a, that's a, that's a that's something that you should do regularly in your Bible reading is when you read a text in your own personal studies is ask, how is this relevant to me? What does it have to do with me? How do I understand this? And where am I in all of this? And that's what, that's what, that's what the eunuch is doing. The reason I, I pointed out this story and the reason I wanted to start at this place is because I think it's a good example of a disciple, right? He, he receives instruction. He has a question on his mind, right? There's a question on his mind, and out of that question, he receives teaching. In this case, supernaturally, the Spirit sends Philip to him. He receives teaching, and his immediate reaction is, how do I make that? How do I make that happen? How do I be a part of that? Hey, look, here's water. What hinders me? Like, how come I, could I, could I do this? Could I be a part of this? And this is what I want to focus on today is this response of the disciple, the make it or break it for the disciple, what hinders people or doesn't, whatever the details that we're going to talk about, and I want to make a catalog of hindrances, but whatever those things are, the essential root that hinders people is not wanting to engage and activate what God's trying to do for their own life. Not seeing it for what it is, not seeing the potential. The disciples are the people who see the potential for what it is. They see Jesus for who he is. And when they see that, they, 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 they want in. They want to be a part. This is instructive stuff, I think. This interaction between Philip and the eunuch is instructive for how we think of evangelism, too. I don't mean to step on Charlton's toes here, but we, the way that I think about evangelism is that we're looking for people who are asking the questions that we have the answers to. That's what happens here, right? Here this eunuch is wandering around in his chariot looking through this text saying, what does this mean? Like he's already got the question in his mind. And when the church can supply the answer to the questions people are already asking, that's when, that's when a match gets struck. So, so you see Jesus doing that, and we'll talk about the value of hindrances here today. You see Jesus doing that. Uh, we also talked about it yesterday, that, that, that um, Micaiah moment, that no prophesy, the get to the bottom, the rich young ruler, no tell me, tell me what's really lacking. That space, that's where we want to get to with people. And 
I'm not going to, uh, that's a sidetrack. I'm going to stop there. So what hinders people? It's also noteworthy. You know, the Ethiopian church, um, they have their own form of orthodoxy. It's quite mystic. They have a, a, a strong mystic tradition. And in reading this today, it's not surprising to me when the founder of their movement that goes back to Ethiopia and starts the Christian church in Ethiopia was ministered to by a guy who literally like just disappears after his baptism. Like, <laughs> I can see where that would create an impetus for mysticism within that new church. So we're asking ourselves the same question the eunuch asks, what hinders? See, a disciple is, is the person who can see Jesus for who and what he is. That's why the, the, the stakes are willing, that's why we're willing to engage with the, with the cost analysis. That's why we're willing to weigh our life, because we can see Jesus for who he actually is. And demonstrating Jesus, like for us in the church, demonstrating Jesus and who he is to the world around us is the greatest evangelistic tool we can use. It's why, in no small part, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another, because we're modeling who Jesus makes us to be to one another, and that has evangelistic value. Being a society of Jesus, being people who act like we're supposed to act, who interact with each other the way that God intended humans to interact, is an evangelistic proposition. It means that Jesus is making something out of his people that's right, that's wholesome, that's well, that's whole and healthy and good. When we have conflicts among us, and when we fight and divide and backbite and gossip, and when we have problems in our midst, it is also an evangelistic problem. When we don't know how to get along together, it's a failure evangelistically. And we need to remember that. It needs to be part of the caution that we enter into difficult situations in the church with. It needs to be a constant reminder in the back of our mind, I need to be careful here because this isn't just about this interpersonal conflict. This is about the testimony of Jesus' people on earth. The stakes are very high when the church has problems. Much higher than the people that are involved with them. I've been in a fair share of church problems even recently, and it's, it's a burden. It hurts. It hurts when we can't do it right. But it's a, it's a needed corrective to have this in our minds. So who is Jesus, and what is he? We talked about the Logos yesterday, the, the God-man. And, and I... I want to I zoom in there a little bit more. I want to I talk about the positive end of this equation and what we're calling people to in discipleship before we move on to what keeps people from it so that we have a proper view of both sides. And when we talked about the Logos as the perfect conceptualization yesterday, I want to talk about him today as, as the full range. So expanding on that idea of the ideal conception of man, like what a man could be in God's mind is Jesus. What that means is, mm, here's, how, here's how I experience the Gospels when I read through the Gospel narratives. I'm always smitten and taken by the range that Jesus has. Like he never stays in a rut. There's no one 
there, there's no one solution for all of his problems. Like, I know how I am, and I know, like, for my, the way my personality works is, you know, I'm a hammer and every problem's a nail. And that just A plus B equals C. Like, that's just how life goes. But I'm stuck in a rut. I'm very narrow in that regard. Like, my, my capacities and my giftings and my personality, they stick me in a rut. And I, I view everything through this, like, unidimensional lens. And, and I have to make everything fit into this narrow paradigm in which I live. And when I read Jesus interacting with people in the Gospels, he has this amazing range and capacity. He, he, never, he never applies the same thing to two different people. He knows how to be as just condemning and sharp and strong as a man can be. Like, he, the, the, the prophets themselves pale in comparison to the sharpness and strictness of Jesus. On the Mount of Olives, he says, I'm of my father, you're of your father. I'm of my father, you're of your father. I'm of my father, you're of your father. Finally, he gets done beating around the bush and he says, you are of your father, the devil, the father of lies, and you're a brood of vipers. And he has that capacity that dwells within the Christ, that capacity of man. But then... On the other end, they bring him this woman caught in the act of adultery, a very clear sin, and he can hardly even be aroused to give a commentary on the situation. He ignores the whole scene and sits and draws a sketch in the depths. And in the most gentle, compassionate way that I can conceive of, and disarms the entire situation and looks at this broken shell of a woman and says, Woman, where are thy accusers? Neither do I condemn And the kindness and the grace and the compassion is overwhelming. And he's the one that fills all of that spectrum in between those things. He's as high as he is low. He's as deep as he is wide. He, he fills up the whole capacity of man. He has these, we find him from time to time escaping from the crowds, escaping from his disciples, and going off into the wilderness just to worship his father, just to, just to be in the creation present and alone with his own father. And then we see him in the midst of the throng, in the midst of the tension, in the midst of the difficulty. We see him shouting on the steps of the temple, and we see him whispering to the disciples behind. And it's my thesis that the more we become like Christ, the more our range expands and the more capacity that we have not to be stuck in our narrow little unidimensional personal views, but that Jesus himself and his spirit and his interactions with us expands the borders of who we are and gives us greater and greater capacity to be fully human because he is fully human. He is fully man. He's everything that man can be. 
And the more that we interact with him and the more that we yield to his tutelage and his disciple, his discipling of our lives through all the mechanisms that he does that we'll talk about this week, through the scriptures, through the church, through experiences, through all these things, as we yield to those lessons and as we grow and learn from stage to stage, from step to step, we find our life expanding to be more like his. And the interesting thing is, we find it expanding in ways that we couldn't produce on our own. It's not just self-help. It's not just be a better you. It's something different. It's about capacity and quality. It's about, like, it's not just being the best version of you that you can be. It's about being more than you could be. It's about being expanded in your capacity. What do I mean by that? We talk about, there's a concept in the scriptures that Paul uses. It's in other places in minor, but Paul speaks of it in specific. He talks about this concept of first Adam, second Adam. Firsts and seconds are an important concept thematically in the Bible. You know, you have the tree in the garden. You have the tree in Cal at Calvary. You have the woman disobeying in, in the garden and Eve. You have the woman obeying in Mary. You have first Adam in the garden failing the temptation. You have second Adam coming to redeem all men. Through one man's sin, death entered the world. Through, uh, through the second Adam, all can have life. Like these, these are important thematic concepts within the text of the scriptures themselves. But in the, in the case of the first and the second Adam, what we have is, wh why a second Adam? Like, why not one part two? Like, why not Adam 1B? Like, if the garden was, if the, garden was the ideal scenario for man, why didn't that get scrapped? We could have just done away with the first Adam and Eve, and God could have restarted and make a new Adam, Adam 1.B. And then we could have done it over again and hopefully not done the temptation, and then we'd all live in bliss and perfect environment, right? That's, I mean, we can, we can guess. We can take a stab at that. Why doesn't that make sense? My premise would be that the second Adam isn't just the fixed version of the first Adam. He's the Adam that God really intended us to be. Now, that's weird, right? Because second Adam lives in a broken world. First Adam lived in a perfect world. Like there's harmony in nature. The, the earth brings forth fruit. They tend the garden. They don't work for their food. They're naked. They're innocent. All these things, the, the animals are pacific. All this stuff in the first world in the first Adam. Everything's ideal and perfect, but somehow that environment isn't enough to produce what God thinks that man can be. And the adversity and trial and difficulty and even death of the broken world is a part of what causes us to know the range and the depth of what men can be. And second Adam fills all of that up. And he shows us not just that Adam can live in a perfect world and be okay, but Adam can live in an imperfect, broken, messy, ugly world and thrive. And that's a different level. There's another version of the first Adam, I think, in Solomon. What do I mean by that? I mean that 
Solomon, what's the point of the story of Solomon? It's kind of gratuitous, right? What does he have? 600 wives and 300 concubines? That's gratuitous. He owns, he, he's, he's the wealthiest man that ever lived, the wise man that ever lived. The guy's got a zoo in his front yard. Like he's a botanist, he's a builder, he's an architect. He has, he has so much stuff laying around, he hardly even knows what to do with it. And I think the lesson, uh, the lesson is taught very clearly in Ecclesiastes when we see the end of those things. But the point to the lesson is this, that if you unfetter man from the constraints of the world, like that's Adam 1, right? In the garden, there's no constraints. Go wherever you want, do whatever you want. You have your own time, sleep when you want, get up when you want, do what you want, be where you want. No constraints. The world is your paradise. It's a perpetual vacation. And then the temptation comes. Now it's like we do it again. We say, okay, well, let's take, let's take Solomon. Let's take a man. And let's take away all the barriers of life. Make him the wisest man that ever lived. He'll contemplate things that men never have and never will contemplate again. He'll have access to all the wealth and all the riches that the world can afford. There's nothing that's not held from him. And when you do that, when you, when you take away all of the barriers in the man's life, what's the result? Failure, temptation, and eventually misery and despair. That doesn't make sense. Why would that be? I'm guessing that most of you are from hardworking families we're taught to work for the things that you own. But you know, there's a very common, you know, like mythology and folklore about winning the lotto, hitting it big. And if you don't come from one of those families, that's a common mythological narrative. Like, what if you won the lottery? What if you, had, you didn't have to work anymore? What if you didn't? And do you know, if you, if you look at the people who that happens to, it's just like Solomon. It's misery and despair and addiction and travesty. And I think the point is that whatever you think your problems are probably aren't your problems. The limitations that you run up against in your life, the difficulties that you have, the trials that you come up against, those probably aren't the real problem. In other words, if I was to fix that problem, if you were to say, you know what, the hardest thing about my life right now is X, and I was to somehow come along and say, I'll fix your X, I'll make it go away, you probably wouldn't live much better of a life after the week that it took for that to wear off. Because our real problems are internal, not external. And wherever we externalize our problems, even if that goes away, you never deal with the inside. You're always stuck first Adam. And it wouldn't matter if life was paradise. You'd still find a way to mess it up. And that's why second Adam is a sensible construct. Because he's not just fixing the environment. He's not just fixing the fact that we are mortal now. He's saying that we can be whole in the midst of that which is broken. And that's a whole different kind of wholeness. It would be one thing to be whole in paradise. It's another thing to be whole in hell. 
And that's the ultimate lesson of the Christ, is that even in hell, even in Hades, even in the place of the dead, he remains whole. So whole that it can't hold him. His wholeness is greater than the brokenness of death. Adam 2 isn't just the corrected version of Adam 1. He's the death breaker. He is life. That's why he means. When he says Mary, when he sees Mary and says, do you believe that you'll see your brother in the resurrection? And she says, yea, Lord. Do you see, believe that you'll see your brother again? And she says, yea, Lord, in the resurrection. He says, no, I am the resurrection. I am the life. So, so it behooves us to model that, to live that, to show that, to explain that, to bear that to the world around us. <clears throat> and that's the proposition of evangelism. But let's look at what hinders people, what keeps them from enjoying the riches of Christ, what, what holds us back, what mirages and short-sightedness keeps us from embracing and living that wholeness that's offered in the Logos. Flip back with me to Mark chapter 4. And we'll look at the parable of the sower. <clears throat> I'm going to read it again. If you get tired on me reading scripture, stand up. Don't, don't, get, don't get sleepy on me. We're going to go through some text today. So, Mark chapter 4 and verse 1, and he began to again to teach by the seaside. Uh, I don't think we need to go. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Um, verse 2, and he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine, hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow, and it came to pass as he sows, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up, and some fell on the stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit, and other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said unto him, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. We'll come back to that. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside, where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately, and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, 
when affliction or persecution ariseth for the world for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on the good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Then he talks about light on a candle. There's, we could actually go through this whole chapter, which I just did in London. Fortunately, Valerie's the only one here that heard that message. So, so we have these. Well, okay, so let's start with the obvious question: Why is he hiding this stuff? Like with the whole message of Messiah coming to Earth, like isn't exposure the whole deal? Like isn't the preaching of these the gospel, the Evangelion, isn't that the whole reason we're here in the first place? Why are we bothering to hide this stuff in stories that are hard to understand that nobody's getting? Why is he spending his time doing this when people don't get it? If you didn't know that, that's actually the quotation of a prophecy in the Old Testament. Having eyes they see not, and having ears they hear not. What's the point to this? Well, we've already talked about it. I'm not going to belabor the point. It's the same thing we talked about yesterday. It's getting to people's real selves. It's really trying people. I think the, the premise is this, and it's just we just have to deal with it as disciples. This is hard. If, if people told you it was an easy way to be a Christian, they lied to you. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard. It's hard to be pulled between what you know is right and what you want. It's hard to know that you're broken. It's hard to see the brokenness in the world around you. It's hard to have sight. It's hard to have eyes and see and ears and hear. It's hard to care. It's hard to minister. It's hard to overcome yourself. It's hard to overcome the world. It's hard. And I don't think that people will make it if they're not getting to the place at where, they, where they encounter Christ at the root. That's exactly what the parable tells us. In this, from this view, the parables are a kind of mercy. It's a graciousness of God to let people come around. You can take what you want. If you, will, if you just want the surface, you can take the surface. And how many people I interact with like that? I'm religious. I'm spiritual but not religious. Jesus was good. Buddha was good. They, those people are getting something good out of Jesus' teaching. Like they're bad. I mean, they are learning things about, about the world from Jesus as just an Eastern mystic. He says wise things, just like the, the, the Psalms do and just like Proverbs does. There's things for anybody to gain, whether they have faith in Christ as Messiah or not. There's good things there. And if that's all you want, then you can come and you can read these things and you can, you can see kind of like this principle of universal harmony and everybody be good to everybody and the world will be a better place and lots of people that's their experience and their exposure to Christ and it's all they want they don't want to dig in they don't want to they don't want to deal with themselves they don't want to really see so there it is take what you want and it's kind of a mercy 
It's not being held, they're not gonna be held to the same responsibility as diving all the way in and being enlightened and seeing the truth. That's the Hebrews warning, right? If you go that far and you turn away and you reject Christ, that's the end. That's, a, that's the worst place to be. It's better to have not been enlightened than to have known the truth and returned again like a dog to its vomit. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reiterations of this kind of theme, you know, not, not giving that which is holy to the dogs, not casting pearls to swine. Like, there's some, there's some, there's something that it's our obligation to leave things behind the veil enough that people have to come looking, that you have to do a little investigation and digging. We want to remove impediments that are coming from us or from, that are not from God, that are coming from our culture or coming from our language or our behavior. We want to get us out of the way, but we dare not get Jesus out of people's way. And the fact is, when Jesus does his ministry, when he delivers the Evangelion, when he preaches the gospel, there's some things you've got to get over. There's some difficulties to endure. And we dare not remove those things. So if we dig into this parable, which is instructive, he says, if you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand any of them? But he gives us a few things that are hindrances. The first one is Satan. Likens it to the birds eating a... Uh, eating the seed. This is, this is a spiritual thing that we're talking about. There are supernatural forces involved. There are angelic and demonic forces in the world. I, 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 I think of myself as a rationalist, like a rational, thoughtful person. Um, I'm, I'm in a church group that's pretty rational thinking. But there are things that are beyond the intellect at play with what we're doing. There are supernatural forces and powers at play that are more than meets the eye. That's a part of what we're claiming. And we need to, be, we need to recognize, no matter how rational we want to approach the text, I don't care if you want to invest your, the rest of your life into into studying Greek and Hebrew so you can know the text inside and out. That's great. Do that. But no matter how rigorous your intellect becomes, there are things about what it is that we have to do that are supernatural. In their, they come from supernatural things, and they're opposed by supernatural things. And there is a supernatural battle being played out when we activate the gospel in the world around us. There are forces that oppose and forces that support. And there's not a whole lot for us to do about that except for know that they're there and appeal to the right places. And know, like, it doesn't stand alone. Like, it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much you invest in in apologetics, no matter how many questions you can answer, no matter how well you, no matter how much Bible you memorize, no matter how much you can always have the right answer at the right time, there's something more than meets the eye that's going on when we're talking about the gospel and the kingdom and discipleship. 
there are forces that oppose. And if prayer isn't a part of our discipleship and our gospel work, then we're missing a huge component, a huge resource of what actually produces fruit in the world and for the kingdom. Prayer cannot be neglected when we're talking about distributing the seed of the word. It's absolutely essential because there are forces that oppose what we're doing that want to come in and snatch away. And when you have conversations with people and it feels like something meaningful happened, it feels like there was an open door, it feels like you got a crack in the person's life and there's, you were able to put a little bit of seed and it seems like they're, they're listening, they're receiving, pray. Pray for them. That that doesn't get swept away by, by unseen forces. It's important to recognize that hindrance that demonic hindrance to what God's trying to do in the world. Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And in stony ground, they receive it with gladness. These are people are glad. Hey, I've learned in my ministry over the years, easy come, easy go. When you're working with somebody as a church or individually in your life and ministry, and it seems like, man, they just want to, can't they just get it? Like, why you got to fight with me about everything? Sometimes those are the best disciples when things come around. The person that really wants to push in, that doesn't just say, yeah, 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 sure, that's okay. Easy come, easy go. That's, that's a very common theme that I've seen in ministry. You have somebody come around and they're like, you're like, okay, let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about the kingdom. They're like, yep, I'm all in. Okay, well, what about this bearing crosses and stuff? Yep, I'm all in. What about non-resistance? Yep, I'm all in. What about head covering? Yep, I'm all in. Really? Like, we don't even talk about it? Yep, I'm all in. In a year, they'll be gone. It's better to dig. It's better to have somebody, are you kidding me? Is that what you really mean? Is that what you really, is that what you really, why do you say, why do you think that? Let's get out the scriptures. Let's take a look. Let's do some work. Those people are much more likely to remain. Easy come, easy go. The shallowness of the dirt there. They receive with gladness, it says. Uh... And have no root in themselves, and so endure for but a time, and afterward in affliction. Or persecution. Because of the word. I, I, I think that there's probably some people... That affliction enough is enough to drive them away. Just hard life can cause some people to fall out of the kingdom. But where people are really tested is when their identity as a Christian, who they are because of the word, the, the stands that they have to take and the things that they have to own because they're a disciple, those things, they really prove who's, who's got roots and who doesn't. It takes depth 
to be able to endure persecution and affliction for the word's sake. And depth takes time. And soil and light and water and all the elements of life have to go into creating depth of root. So what can you do? What can you do to create root in your life? How to root yourself in Christ? Well, you dig. Get deep. Search the scriptures. Study the word. Be in prayer. Be instant. Stretch yourself. Grow. Those are things that create depth of root. So that when difficulty comes and trials come, there's something there to stand on, something there to hold you up. And those that are sown among the thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust for other things. Cares, riches, and lust for other things. Choke out life. I don't know what more there is to say about that. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. But, you, it, but it's a tragedy to watch. It's a tragedy to watch. Focus is the thing that prevents this the kind of focus discipleship, you know, keeping your eyes and your focus on Christ himself. When he's primary, these things don't get in the way. And if you start your life, if you start embracing the word with, a, with that mixed eye, that, un, that eye that's not single, that eye that's not purely focused on the prize of Christ himself, then these things come in. And they come in slow. I have a little shingle plant in my shingle ivy in my office and it almost died. But you know, they want to they wanna grow, like a lot of ivies, they want to grow, and they reach out these little tendrils, and they just kind of feel around until they grab something, and they just slowly, slowly, slowly. And I think that's really the, you know, this is very fast. This is instant when it happens, but this is very slow. This creeps and crawls into a life, just inch by inch, millimeter by millimeter, just becomes more and more invasive until it's constricted, can't grow anymore, and it dies. They're weeds. And then fourth is the good soil. Obviously, there's a hindrance. That's what we're after. And we can tell, you can tell, you can self-analyze where you are in this spectrum by whether or not you're seeing fruit. How do you grow? You know, I, I haven't been saying as much lately, but I used to say it very, very, very often to the church here. The one thing, as a church leader, the one thing that scares me to death, the one thing that keeps me up at night, is if people don't grow. 
if you don't, if you have the same problems year over year, like you, you list out your problems today and you say, I know I'm weak here, I'm weak here, and I'm weak here. If we come and visit that list a week, um, a year later, and that's the same list, you're, you're on thin, thin, thin ice, brother and sister. Like that's, that's, that's the, that's the death cough. That's the death rattle right before you go under. You can't stay still. You can't stay and wallow in the same problems year after year after year after year. That's not a Christian life. That's not how this is supposed to work. You're not supposed to be stagnant. I talk to people sometimes, they've been Christians for 20 years, they've got the same problems they had 20 years ago. That, that's death, that's not life. This, this discipleship is designed that your life moves forward. And, and you have to, because when you move forward, you realize there's a bunch of stuff that you didn't even know was there. That stuff's there a year ago when you didn't know it was there. It was still there too. It was dragging on your feet like an anchor. You just didn't know it was there because you had other bigger things in the way. And as you clear that stuff out, as you, as you make advance, as you progress in your life, in your spiritual life, and you start to step forward, you start to see all the other things that are there that are holding you back. And then you have to start cutting at that stuff and keep moving forward and keep moving forward. This is the struggle of life for the Christian. And you have to assess, am I growing? Notice the question is not, am I perfect? The question is, am I growing? I, when I talk about this in our churches, I say, I don't care where people are starting. I don't care if you're starting in a jailhouse or a gutter or a methadone clinic. You can start from anywhere. You just have to move forward. You have to move forward. It's hard to claim your place, your title, and your role as a disciple if you're not moving forward. There are some people that are really, you know, people with a sensitive conscience that get really bothered. And they say, you know, I've been struggling with these things, so I must not be a Christian. I, there are little hills and valleys. You just have to know what the trend is. You have to be able to say, in a matter of time, my life is moving forward. Yeah, I, I fell, I got back up. I had this problem again, but I'm getting better. I can see that my life is improving. I can see that I'm making progress. I can see that I'm growing. That's what you have to be able to say with conviction to claim properly that you're a fruitful soil for the gospel, that the word is active and effective in your life and it's producing something, that I am a disciple. I have a friend, an old friend. He um, he was one of these off the grid guys. Lived in a yurt with his big family. He was an organic gardener, uh, a brilliant gardener. Guy was the most serious gardener I ever knew. I went with him. He grew tomatoes mostly. Well, it was his cash crop. He grew a lot of stuff, but it was his cash crop. And I went out to pick tomatoes with him. And he took a scale, 
and a computer and had a spreadsheet and he weighed every piece of fruit that came off of every plant so that he would know exactly which tomatoes he wanted to plant for seeds the next year. He was a really interesting guy um, and he lived in northern Michigan and he was trying to do everything so that it was repeatable almost anywhere in the world. So like everything was super low tech. And, and this brother was, he was producing, producing fruit in low tech greenhouses in northern Michigan in March. That's, a, that's a impressive, I don't know if you, you all know what that means. That's a very impressive thing to do. <laughs> this is like feet of snow on the ground and you're growing tomatoes. So, so I asked him one time, like, how do you do this? Like, especially with, how do you get fruit that early in the year? Like, what are you doing to create this kind of like season extension? How are you producing life out of this harsh climate with just visqueen and, and a wood stove? And he took me into his seedling greenhouse and it was, it was very low tech. It was just boards and visqueen, just clear plastic, but it was double walled. He had a small greenhouse inside of a bigger greenhouse. And in that he had a, he had a wood stove. And I said, well, how much, do you, how much do you run that wood stove? Like is that thing just cranking all the whole time when you got these seedlings in here? He said, no, if it gets about, if it gets below zero, maybe 10 below zero, I'll turn the wood stove on. But I want these things to be hardy. I want them to survive. And we lose some. Some of them don't grow. We start all of our seedlings, and the ones that harden themselves to the weather and continue to grow, these are fantastic plants. And the ones that don't, they die. And it's kind of like a, like if you're a tomato plant, that's kind of cruel and calculating, right? <laughs> but if you have to produce fruit, it's smart, it's wise, it's the way I would grow. And, and when we talk about these difficulties, like this rock of offense, these stumbling blocks, these hard things, like why isn't it easier? The hard things are there because what comes out the other end is life. I talk about this with our church planting, you know, when, when, we, when we do church planting, uh, it, it's, it's how, many, how many little groups of churches were there that didn't get an epistle, that didn't get written about, that didn't continue, that don't exist in our history record? I don't know. Presumably lots. I got letters from some of the big successful ones, and even they had a lot of problems, right? And I talk, when I talk about church planting... When I talk about ecclesiology, one of the things I talk about is these phases, developmental phases of maturity in, in corporate life, in church life. And the, there's a reason. The way that the, the apostles started churches is risky. And it has potential flaws. Like it has potential fatal moments in the life of a new church. But what comes out the other end is strong and reliable and can endure. And if you don't have these phases of growth where there are some significant things that you have to overcome, you don't live. Adversity is required. You, you go to a zoo and you see a lion and you think, what a majestic beast. And then you sit there and watch it for more than 10 minutes and you think, what a tragic creature. I think it's built to run and to devour and to roar. And here it sits in a cage and you can see... Uh, I can. I, I feel like when I watch those poor creatures, I'm like, what a miserable existence. They say that 
they, I, I, I worked with South Sudanese refugees in Uganda for, for a time, and uh, they said that in the early days of South Sudan, when it was a brand new country, you know, South Sudan is the newest country on earth, at least it was back then, 2015 it was founded, seceded from Big Sudan, became South Sudan and Sudan. And in South Sudan, there was so much money that came from the West, there were literally warehouses full of pallets of money. And at a certain point in South Sudan, there were more supercars per capita in Juba, South Sudan, than anywhere else in the world. And there was exactly one mile of pavement. <laughs> well, what good is a supercar if you got one mile of pavement? It's not built for that. You have miles and miles. All of these are examples of why, why adversity and strength go together. We, God's people, are built to live and to thrive. And I know that it doesn't always feel like that. I know that there are bumps in the road, and I know that life is hard sometimes. Believe me, I know. But if you're doing it right, if you're doing it in Christ, you can look back at the adversity in your life and the difficulties and the trials, and they can be the moments of strength and power and grace. We have a lot of brothers and sisters here from Minneapolis a church that I love very, very much. I was just there, the last time I was there in January, which was a year from the time I had been there the previous January when we buried Jerome and Laura's infant. And it was, it was the most painful thing I've ever done in the church. It's excruciating. And when I was there last January, I was talking with Laura, who buried her baby the year before. And it had been a year, and we were talking about how things went and how things were. And she said, she said, is it okay? that I feel like that was the worst time of my life and also kind of the best? Is it okay that I feel like in the midst of all that pain that I was growing and seeing God's grace and favor like I never had before? Yes, it's okay. That's second Adam. That's overcoming. That's making beauty of ashes. That's God overcoming the world and his people. That's beating death. We are not those without hope. And the worst tragedies for our people can resound with hope and joy. If we can overcome the hindrances I want to catalog a few things that Jesus says to people 
in, in analyzing this. Look at Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to have to move a little faster. In Matthew chapter 8, <clears throat> sidebar, in Matthew chapter 8, there's a very unique situation, uh, and I'm going to leave this for you. This is just a bonus. In Matthew 8.10, the expression says, um, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. In Matthew 8 and verse 26, it says, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Great faith and little faith in the exact same chapter, just a few verses apart. Selah, you can think on that your own. It's a different message. But it's an interesting text. I, what we're after, though, is verse 18. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment depart on the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. There's another person that said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Right before he denied Christ. hard to know what to do with that. <clears throat> On the one hand, I want to encourage people to make bold statements about your faith. Be strong, especially you young people. Be strong. Stake some claims for God. Do some things that are, apart, that are not just perfectly sensible. But there's also some lessons to be learned when you do that. It's, it's hard to do that. It's hard to stake your claim in bold terms and to say, I'll do whatever God wants me to do. I do think you should say that. I do think you should mean it. And I do think that you should buckle up. He said, I want to go wherever you're going. And Jesus says, okay, really? This is a very common refrain. It's, it's a very common answer for Jesus when somebody stakes their faith to him. Okay, do you really mean it? Can, you, can we be on your right hand or your left hand? It's not mine to give. But can you drink from the cup that I'll drink from? No, you can't, but you will. Right after this, foxes have holes and birds have nests. Another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. This one, that dead bury their dead, like that... It gives me chills. It's hard to know what that doesn't apply to. I mean, what he's saying is that anything else that's a distraction, anything, anything that distracts you from following me, you got to put it in a separate category. It's got to be 
somewhere else. And I, I, th I think if you stop and think about the implications of just this one text, let the dead bury their dead, and think about all the things in your life that are associated to a dead world, that's a heavy, that's a heavy analysis to make. I, I, I struggle with this one. Brothers and sisters, this one, this one I lose sleep over sometimes. What about my life, my day-to-day -day life? When I get up in the morning and I go through my routines and I do my stuff and I come home and I have supper with my family and I go the next day and do it all again, what of that 24 hours belongs to the world of the dead? And what of it belongs to Christ? You got to put this stuff in your own life. It's not for that. It's not just for that guy there at that place at that time. This stuff is about you and me. That's why it's there. Uh, security is the first one, right? I'll follow you wherever. Will you follow me into the unknown? Will you follow me into homelessness? Will you follow me into places where you don't know what the outcome's gonna be? Will you follow me when you don't know what's ahead of the next step? That's essentially what Jesus is asking. And the other is hmm, a lack of focus. It's the world of the dead. Those are two things that are hindrances to disciples. Look over at John chapter 18. We've got to keep moving. I call this one Pilate's Nihilism. In the 28th verse, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but, they, but that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? And they answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews therefore said unto him, It's not lawful for us to put any man to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying what death he should die. And then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, saying, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thy own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? In 
today's America, this is one of the biggest hindrances that I run into in gospel work. This is one of the greatest hindrances that keeps people away from the kingdom of God is the, is the root doubt that truth even exists. And I don't have all the answers for that. I don't know what we should all do about that. I don't think that there's just like a pat answer for that. But it is something that we need to look for in ourselves and in the world around us because it's a cultural phenomenon of our day and our time and our place that people are losing touch with anything concrete. That the proposition of truth itself not a particular truth, but truth itself is now in question. It's not a matter anymore of which truth is true, which claim is true. It's a matter of, is there a true claim? And just like Pilate, the end of that question, when it doesn't find a resolution, is despair. There's something tempting about this proposition in the world around us. It's the spirit of the age. There's a zeitgeist that comes straight from Pilate's mouth. What is truth? Like, we can all pick for ourselves. Like, there's not a world around us that's arrayed and ordered by a creator that makes sense in him. And I, I, I can speculate as to why different people make this doubtful expression. But I think that the resolution, in whatever form it comes, comes by, comes to the proposition of being a disciple, of seeing truth in Christ, of finding hope in Him. And, and it's, why, it's why I have a lot of confidence that we don't have to resolve a lot of the, exter the peripheral details. Uh, in fact, I would say this. I, so if you don't know, I, have a, I, I do a podcast with an atheist friend of mine. He's a very good friend. His name's Felix Rust, and I love him very much. Uh, and we get together, and we talk, and we do, a, we do a podcast, and we just have, we talk about controversial subjects, and we present an atheist worldview and a Christian worldview. And it's done in a, in a our main point in starting that in the first place was that there's so much vitriol and hatred that was being exposed in the public forum. Like, if you don't agree with me, I hate your guts. And there was so much of that happening, especially in the Trump years. In the lead up to, but especially in the Trump era, there was just so much vitriol. It happened in the church. It happened over COVID. It just, like, the world was an epidemic of hatred. And we wanted to model and display that you can be coming from very different perspectives on things and care for one another and be kind and gracious and compassionate. And so we started just tackling some difficult issues. And we talk very often about this, this exact thing of what, what is truth? Like, is there, something to, is there something to hold on to? And if you listen to, uh, having done that for many hours now and having these conversations with my friend, a 
obviously I believe in my worldview, but I feel like my worldview is centered and anchored. And when I talk with my friends who are in, stuck in Pilate's nihilism, like life is just a sandstorm. Like they're just rolling across the hills of the cosmos with nothing to anchor and nothing to hold on to. And it's frightening. It's a frightening place to be. And, and my point in bringing all that up is that if, if, if I could convince Felix of all of the moral propositions that we would have in, in discrepancy, if I could convince him that abortion was wrong, or if I could convince him that, well, whatever, take your pick, any kind of worldview discrepancy between me and, and, and a compassionate atheist. If I could convince him of all of those propositions, but not convince him of Christ, his life really wouldn't be any better. Because he has moral convictions. He's not, he's not an immoral man. He's not bereft of any kind of like conscious reasoning about the world around him and care for people that are in his life and world. In fact, he does a lot better than many, many Christians that I've known. The, the thing is, the thing that he's missing is the anchor. And so when we talk with people, when we think about our own lives, the anchor is not in the propositions. The anchor is not in the outcomes. The anchor is in Christ himself. That is not a trite expression. That is not a cliche. Listen to me, that is not a cliche. The person of Jesus is the anchor, not the things that he taught, not the things that we do because he is the Messiah, but he himself, and he's telling us this again and again, and you have to get to the source, you have to get to him, not the things that surround him, if you want to be anchored and rooted in as a disciple. The propositions that come from him are not enough. There's a couple other examples of things that are offenses. You know Jesus is called the rock of offense and we could have titled this message that. Which the builders have rejected. The rock of offense. <clears throat> There's three other examples in Matthew chapter 11. This one's good. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Stop. You have to put the piece of this story together. If you go back to the beginning of the gospel account, John was given a prophecy when he was wandering in the wilderness. And that prophecy said, just to John himself, that prophecy said, 
the one on whom thou seest the spirit descend as a dove is him. And so John moves forward in his ministry, looking for the moment. Jesus' baptism happens. The spirit descends like a dove. That's pretty sure proof, right? The one who thou seest the spirit descended on a dove, spirit descends as a dove. What more do you need? But here we see John. And why is that? Why is John sending his disciples from prison to say, Art thou the one, or look we for another? He, of all people, should know. What does he say? <coughs> Jesus answered and said to them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight. These are the, this is the prophecy from the Old Testament. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And I feel for John. Do you know why I feel for John? I feel for John's ego and his work. The guy, I mean, Jesus goes on after this, after the disciples leave. He, Jesus feels for him too. He says he's the greatest that was born among women. And I can just imagine what it was like for John sitting in prison, like just a little bit. Like he, here he's done all this work, all this. He's the forerunner, right? So he lives his whole life out in the wilderness, like getting, getting it right, for working it out. He's doing this like whole hermit monastic thing, like just me and God alone in the wilderness. I'm going to be the wild prophet, the, the, the camel hair girdle and everything, the locusts and wild honey. I'll eat bugs. I'll do the whole thing. I'll just be alone, just me and God, so I can figure this out because there's divine cosmic mysteries, and I'm in the, I'm in the crosshairs of eternity. Something's happening. God's doing something, and I have to figure out what it is. I have a calling on my life. John leapt in the womb. He was filled with the Spirit from the womb. And all that time in his whole life, everything, 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 the whole cosmos is organizing itself to bring about this moment. And he's the forerunner. He's the one. He's the one that's going to open up the path for Messiah to come. All of human history and everything that God's been doing is coming to this culminating point. And I've got to get ready. And so he goes out into the wilderness and he works and works and works to find what God's doing and he finally sees it, he finally gets his marching orders, and he goes out into the Jordan, and he starts baptizing and preaching and making the way. Clean your life up. He's coming, he's coming. And he does it for just this tiny space of time. In the midst of that, in that beginning flourish of life, he's just a blade of grass that's just becoming green. In the middle of just the beginning, he tells Herod, you have your brother Philip's wife, and this is not lawful. And shoo, there he goes, away into a prison. And there he sits, away in a prison. And I don't know about you, but if I was John, what I would be thinking is like, no, 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 not yet. There's so much stuff to do. 
I've spent my whole life getting ready for this. I've got so much work to do. Messiah is coming. I've seen it. I've seen it in the stars. I've heard it in the spirit. Messiah is coming, and I have a job to do, and I've got to get out there to do it. God, let me out of here. Let me out of here. I have work to do. And these, this desperate plea of these disciples coming from John's prison cell is John's expression of saying, this can't really be it, can it? My whole life for this, for a minute in the sun? And what? What did I do? What have I accomplished? What have I performed? I preached a couple of sermons in a river. That's it. That's it. That's it. We all have an ego. We all want to do great things for God, right? You're supposed to. That's not a bad thing. The bad thing is when that becomes more important than actually doing what God says, than actually living out the place that God has for you. and your place in the world and your value to the people around you and your value to the kingdom, your role in ministry, those are either subject to Christ or they become your God. I've, why, 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 why every time somebody ascends Mount Sinai to deliver a message to the people, every time there's a crowd listening to some man of God, every time... A year later, we find out the debauchery and wickedness and evil that that man was living. A lot of us grew up like listening to Ravi Zacharias and being like, hey, you can be an intellectual Christian. This fundamentalism thing where you're just dumb country bumpkin Billy in his Bible, like it doesn't have to be that way. You can think seriously about the scriptures. You can think seriously about the world. You can think seriously about who you are in Christ in the scriptures. You can have an intellectual life in Christ. And we were enraptured. We were like, yeah, man, this is it. You can be smart in a Christian. Christian and then and then we find out he's wicked and it happens again and again and again and again I, I think sometimes that's why God cuts us short I think that's why John ends up in prison. I don't know that, but I think that. But I do know, I do know that when you think you're the key, when you think you're irreplaceable, 
when you think you're more important than the people around you, than the truths that you present, than the kingdom that you represent, when that happens, that's, that's really, really bad stuff. That's where, that's where the devil lives. That's where men start to act like demons. When you're so sure you're right that you can't be wrong. I only have a few minutes left. But there's a few other places I would go. I would, I would take us to, to the Jesus' family showing up at the door when he's in the middle of preaching. They're looking for place. They're looking for their, their, their place of honor, like their respect. This happens in a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, um, narrative sequences in the, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. It's like, you know, the, 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 the parable of the, um, the prodigal son, right? The end of that's really the clincher. Like, I've been here being faithful the whole time. You're going to slaughter the fatted calf for him? Like, what about me? What about my place? Don't I belong? And Jesus is in the middle of the room preaching, and the, the brothers and sisters and mom come. Hey, your family wants to talk to you. Who's my mother? How does that make Mary feel? Who's my mother? What do you mean, boy, who's your mother? I'm your mother. <laughs> but he was, he was equalizing everything. Everybody comes the same way. Nobody has special access. You don't have special access. you got to come through the door just like everybody else. I don't care what your family was. I don't care what your home was. I don't care what your church was. Everybody comes through the door. There's no privileged access. Nobody gets to claim a right to him that doesn't come through the door. And I want to... There's some others we could talk about offenses, but I want to talk about people who overcame offense. I want to end on a good note, and I'll have to do it quickly. In Matthew chapter 15, let me recommend for you, especially in regards to John, there's, um, do you all know the works of Gene Edwards? Has anybody read Prison in the Third Cell? Raise your hand if you read that book. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. Gene Edwards, there's a lot of things that are wonky about Gene Edwards, but he wrote a couple of pieces of historic fiction, biblical historical fiction that are phenomenal. Tale of Three Kings is an amazing analysis of, of a way of looking at authority in the Bible. Um, I would recommend that book very highly, but there's another one called Prisoner in the Third Cell. It's about John being in prison and this whole issue of what do you do, what do you do when things don't work the way that you thought they were going to work. There's a scene in that book, I think I can tell you this one without a spoiler, there's a scene in that book that just like rips my heart open every time I read it. It, it, it plays out this scene where Jesus is healing in a house and the, the people have lined up throughout, across the whole village and they just stand in line waiting to get to the healer. And it's the scene of this woman with her sick child and there she is standing all day and one waiting and waiting and waiting I finally have hope and waiting 
And she gets to the door, and the disciples come, and they say, the master's tired no more. What do you do then? Like, where does she go? What are you supposed to do when you don't get the answer that you want? What are you supposed to do when life doesn't work? Like, she's doing everything right, right? It's Jesus. He's the healer. I'm supposed to come to him. He's the answer. That's what I've been told. That's what I, that's what I believe, right? He's the Messiah. He's the answer. He's the answer. He's the answer. He's the answer. But here I am, and I can't get in. What do you do then? It's a great book. Prisoner in the Third Cell. What you do is you do what's done in Matthew 15. In verse 21, and we'll, we'll end here. Then Jesus went thence and departed to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. If you grew up in church, I dare say that psychologically you do not identify with the Syrophoenician woman. Chances are. If you grew up in church, you probably identify with the disciples, the Jews. Because you grew up around this stuff, right? Like you had access early on. You're part of the people. And I don't, I don't begrudge you that. I, I'm doing it with my children. I'm not going to raise them outside of church. I don't, I don't think that's wrong. But I think it's wrong not to take into account. And from time to time, especially when it comes to considering your own discipleship, we need to properly fix ourselves in the context of this story. You... And me are Gentile dogs. Don't forget it. We are not the people that have access to these things. He didn't come for us primarily. My fathers were pagan devil worshipers. And yours were too. I don't, I'm an alien to the commonwealth of Israel. I don't belong here. I'm not a part of this original story. I come in by the skin of my teeth. 
I don't have a natural right to these things. What profit is there then among the Jews? Much and every way for the oracles of God. They belong to them. There was a people that was set apart and there was a way that this story came together and you and I were not a part of that story. And that humility is why this woman, her understanding of that principle allows her to be so spurned and so rejected and not offended. There's a humility from coming, from her knowing where she's entering in from that allows her to say, yeah, okay, I'm a dog then. I'll be a dog. I'm okay with that. But I still need to be here. And this is how you overcome the offense. This, this place of gratitude, this place of being glad to be as close as you are. There's so many people in this story around Jesus' life that are just glad to be in the moment. What do you do when you're the lady standing at the door with your sick child? What do you do? <clears throat> I've spent a lot of time in the last few years holding a sick child, crying himself to sleep. hard to do and there are times in those moments when you feel very sympathetic to all these situations when you feel like whoa how am I supposed to get through this what's this supposed to be how, how do I how do I move forward how do you hold a child writhing in pain night after night and keep going And the way you keep going is you remember who you are and you remember how much you have just because you get to be in the room with him. Because he's near and he doesn't have to answer all my problems. He doesn't have to fix all my issues, but I just want to be, I just want to be in the room. I'm just glad for the little place I have. I don't need a big place. I'll take a little place. Just let me be there. And those places keep you coming back again and again. That, that place, that identity in the story, that place of the Syrophoenician woman, when you can be in that place, it'll make room because it's a place of faith. It's a place that says, I'll take whatever I can get. I know what the answer is. I know who matters. I know who you are. And I'll take everything I can. That's the way... You avoid offense. Okay, I'm five minutes past. I think I'm doing pretty good, so. <laughs> we'll stop there. Thank you.